Welcome along. Two teams remain in contention to lift football's ultimate prize. It's Mbappe against Messi after France joined Argentina in Sunday's World Cup final. And that's it. The Marrakesh Express has reached the end of the line. The champions are in the final to defend their trophy. We'll be reflecting on last night's semi-final and, of course, looking ahead to Sunday's decider. A potential breakaway European Super League has received a significant setback today. Details coming up. Ian Tracy will preview the second weekend of rugby's Heineken Champions Cup and we'll be hearing from Jeff Shepard with his eye on America. You can email gameon at rte.ie or text 51552. Now, before we get to all that, it's been a significant day in Irish swimming. Swimming. Daniel Whiffen produced one of the most noteworthy swims ever by an Irish competitor. He set a European record in the 800 metres freestyle at the Irish National Winter Championships in Dublin. And uh, after the uh, race today, he spoke to John Kenny. I mean, going into this, obviously, off last weekend, I thought I'd be in the chance of going close to the world record. I just thought it was good. I felt feeling good before the race, and then I, I to myself, I thought I was going quite slow, but when I saw 7.25, I was off. So it's hardly slow. It's 10 seconds better than the time you swam in the midway point of a 1500 last week. Obviously, a lot faster. Well, the 800 split and 1500 normally is going to be slower than your PB, but because we never really do that many 800s, but uh, to be honest, I didn't really expect to go that much faster. It's not as if you're racing against anybody else. You're lapping most of the field as well. What's it like in the water for you there where you're having to do this all on your own? I wasn't really looking at anybody around me. I was just focusing on myself. I had like kind of the blinders on on the side of my head, uh, just trying to focus on hitting my turns and getting the right stroke. So, yeah. Uh, I guess it worked out. When you consider it, when you look at that time, it's 10 seconds quicker than you did last week, as we mentioned. So in two seconds, that's not a world record set in a shiny suit back in 2008 by Grant Haggard. And it's the fourth fastest time ever. And you're still only 21 years of age. So obviously distance swimming is suiting you, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm quite young. So next year will be, we'll go for the world record, obviously. But yeah, I just say I'm over the moon. Quite speechless, to be honest with you. But an Irish swimmer thinking about building, breaking a world record. I mean, a European record is something special, but looking at the cusp of a world record, do you think you can do it? Yeah, definitely. I think there's still some technical points, especially in that race. I missed a couple of turns at the end. And uh, yeah, definitely, I've, I've got different ways to move it on. So, Daniel Whiffen speaking there to John Kenny. Now, of course, France are one win away from a successful World Cup defence. Only two nations have managed to win the game's biggest prize back-to-back. They, of course, secure their place in Sunday's World Cup final with a 2-0 win over Morocco last night. It was a game watched by George Hamilton. Uh, Griezmann's got free. Griezmann. Oh, and Mbappe's missed it. And he's got that second attempt, and it's still not away. And Hernandez scores. Well, it was all going wrong for Mbappe. But Teo Hernandez is the one who finally puts it in the net. And France lead. Ziyech with the corner. Oh! What a chance that was, and it hit the post, and it's not away yet. Amrabat, and then finally the shot from Poufal. It was El Yamin, the defender. For the run around the outside of Adi Adala. 
And somehow they've kept it out. Great opportunity for Morocco. This is Amrabat now. And the shot's gone harmlessly wide. The defending from Canati is world-class. Wonderful balance and skill of Kylian Mbappe. And here he is again. And it's in at the far post, but is the flag going to stay down? Yes, it is. It's for solely on the pitch a moment. And it's Colomuani scores its first goal for France and surely puts them in the World Cup final. And that is George Hamilton describing the action last night as France secured a place in Sunday's World Cup final. Paul Corey joins me in studio. Paul, have the two best teams in the tournament reached the final? I think so. I think, you know, both of them have showed good levels of consistency throughout the tournament if, if you bear in mind the fact that Argentina have been playing knockout football since the defeat to, or to Saudi Arabia and France have, have kind of cruised through the group and, and managed to do very well in the knockout stage so yeah I mean on, on the basis of it and the performance that they've put in particularly in the knockout stage you, you probably would have to say that the two best teams have arrived which should be a fantastic final on Sunday In terms of the performance last night, Didier Deschamps afterwards admitted the performance wasn't perfect. I suppose no performance is. And he was uh, obviously asked about the game on Sunday. He said that maybe the team that makes fewest mistakes will win potentially and last night was was far from France at, the, at their fluid best I think they've they've played better um, particularly in the group stages than they did last night and you know the game plan was ripped up for Morocco when, when the early goal went in but France you know really struggled to get a foothold in the game a foothold of possession which they've managed to do at different times throughout the competition and, and they probably would have expected and I would have expected that they would have created more chances I don't think we saw the best of Dembele and Mbappe last night um, particularly having scored the early goal there was room and, and space for them to, to operate in and I would expect that they would have created much more chances but I mean the sign of a good team of when they're not playing well is that they just be, be difficult to beat and, and for the majority of that game albeit Morocco had a lot of possession they defended well um, Varane and Konate in particular did quite well I thought Konate and Fofana who came in for, for the two injuries Tupamankana and Rabiot were, were pretty impressive and they just did enough they were professional in the display they they were difficult to, to break down and naturally enough when you have somebody like Mbappe at the top end of the pitch for the second goal Dave I, I thought he was superb like the drop of the shoulder to get past Hakimi then the second drop of the shoulder to get past uh, Amrabat and naturally enough that creates the opportunity opportunity but if they're to play like that against Argentina uh, I think they'll find it difficult I think they'll need to up their levels that they've shown against England and that they've shown against Morocco because Argentina is a much different test but the know-how and the experience got them through last night Of course Morocco obviously has been have been so impressive in this tournament and again last night they obviously uh, gambled with uh, some players who, who perhaps weren't fully fit you could understand why they played obviously that didn't work out they also conceded that early goal but they were right in it until that second French goal. It was a different type of Morocco, wasn't it? Um, you know, you mentioned there like Saïs has, has been so important for them and him going off early is, is kind of ripped up their plan as has... Um, as has the the early goal like we would have seen them against Portugal and Spain being so difficult to beat and, and hanging in there for large periods of the game conceding early meant that they, they had to open up and they had to go about their 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 game plan I guess in a, in a different kind of direction and in the first half last night they had more passes than they did in the, in the entirety of the game against Portugal and we saw probably a different side to Morocco where, where they opened up and they they probably dominated possession more in, in that game last night that they have done throughout the competition I thought they played really well 
you could you could just see though in their performance that they were crying out for for a number nine or they're crying out for a bit more quality in the final third. I thought when Ziyech and Hakimi got themselves into decent positions, you would have expected more of an end product, and and the crossing and and the final ball into the box was maybe lacking at times. And the same could be said for Buffal on the left hand side, and they just couldn't string it together, and they just didn't have that kind of killer instinct in the box that, that the French do and, and that was probably their Achilles heel that's what has maybe held them up from, from going beyond France but in general play and, and the performance and the efforts that they've shown considering what they've had to put in to get to the semi-final last night I thought they gave a really good reflection of themselves and you know they deserve major credit and then they can walk away with with real pride of, of the performances that they've shown throughout the competition but last night was, was a step too far and probably coming up against a French team with that much quality was always going to prove a difficult task what about that tackle from Amrabat on Mbappe? <laughs> it was brilliant. I mean, Amrabat throughout the competition has probably been their, their talisman, uh, you know, not only just breaking up the play, but his use of possession has been superb. And the heart and, and kind of guile that he's shown throughout the competition is, has been sort of, um, you know, I guess typical of Morocco and how they've gone about gone about their business I didn't think last night was his best performance I thought he maybe coughed up possession once or twice but yeah an absolute crunch and tackle on, on Mbappe and, and the heart that he's shown and, and the quality that he's shown you know don't be surprised if, if he gets a move away from Fiorentina because the way he marshaled the midfield against Portugal and against Spain he's certainly somebody that you could see playing in a, in a better team and, and playing strong rumours of Liverpool you wouldn't be surprised just in the energy that he has and, and the way that he's break, able to break up the play is he capable of going to a top 4 Premier League team I'm not sure right now he, he obviously showed good performances throughout the competition but maybe you know maybe that, that little tier below the below the Premier League top 4 you could see him operating in, in one of those teams and then gradually building his way up but himself and, and the likes of Hakimi were absolutely superb for Morocco Obviously, in terms of uh, Ireland, we could potentially be facing the world champions again. Uh, the world champions at the moment, obviously, France, they could still be world champions when they come to uh, Dublin in March. From an Irish uh, viewpoint, uh, how would you assess what, what we're, we're facing up to come next March? <laughs> it's very unlikely. I think they were going to get any points from France within the group. I mean, you look last night and Upamakana and Rabio dropped out and Konate and Fofana come in. It's without Pogba, it's without uh, Benzema, it's without Ingolo Kante. They've just got so much talent. They've, there's endless amounts, irrespective of who drops out. They seem to have another top player who can come in and that would worry you. They've got so much confidence about their play. You can see last night they can dig in and they can grind it out or they can open you up if you think back to to some of their, their earlier games within the group the way they, they pulled Poland apart even when they, they played for the moments against England I thought they looked threatening when they went forward so it's it's very difficult to see how how we are to get something from from that game you know they're they're more than capable of of lumping a ball into the box and playing off Giroud and, and being a bit more direct, or they've got the pace from Dembele and Mbappe. They could just carve you apart. So the worrying thing is is that they can they can open you up in so many different ways that it's very difficult to see how how Ireland and and the form that we've been in how how we could possibly get something from that game but maybe a World Cup hangover Dave you, you never know But that was going to be my next question are we clutching at straws to suggest oh, oh, that we, ab- we absolutely are I think even the Holland game is, is going to be very difficult um, those those two fixtures that we have within that group I think it's it, it's very unlikely on what they've shown in this World Cup against top teams that we're going to get anything from those games Moving on to Sunday we mentioned it at the top and the game itself is going to be primarily billed as Mbappe against Messi but obviously so much more than that It is and Mbappe has has got many of the headlines within that French team but I think if you look over the course of the last two games 
it's been about Antoine Griezmann for me and, and how he's connected the dots between the back four and that front three and, and how he's been deployed from Deschamps in behind that kind of forward line and, and just the tenacity that he's shown and the hunger that he's shown not only when he's on the ball to go and win it back and, and bring other players into play so his game has completely changed Dave over, over the course of the last kind of four years he was their tallies man and he scored a number of goals in Russia he scored a number of goals in Euro 2016 and now he's become more of the provider so a lot of Argentina's game plan I would imagine would be about shutting down Griezmann because potentially if you shut down Griezmann you cut off the supply to the front three and then naturally enough you can't escape Mbappe's quality I mean he's torn opposition apart uh, he's so dangerous in, in that left hand side and how they go about that whether or not they they play with a five at the back and double up on him or whether they rely on the likes of Enzo Fernandez and, and Rodrigo De Paul getting across and giving the likes of Molina a dig out I think they're the two areas that they need to, to work on and then you could flip that around and of course Messi has been absolutely electric the French left-back position is is an area of concern on the basis of Mbappe does not want to track back. You saw last night even Hakimi and Ziyech getting at him. Think back to Saka and the England game. That is a weak point uh, from France. Uh, Hernandez is excellent going forward, but he's shown it won't be one situations. He's not the best defender. Messi, naturally enough, will, will find pockets of space. He'll drift in areas where he feels that he can pick up the ball and get at teams. Think to Gavardi all the other night, running him down the line. I can easily see Molina and Messi operating in that territory and causing them a few problems. So it's, it's going to be it's going to be intriguing to see how how it plays out. I think you know what Deschamps has said there the team who makes the less mistakes could well come out on top I think it's going to be edgy I think a lot of the quality on the position on, on the pitch might actually end up cancelling each other out maybe it's a it's a mistake maybe it's a, it's a moment of pure brilliance and quality but it's certainly going to be a close game Five players that started for France last night started in the World Cup final in 2018 obviously uh, could be a couple of more that come into the team that start on Sunday Lionel Messi obviously huge experience he's not going to freeze on the on the big occasion but is that a slight advantage for France to, to have had guys who have played on the biggest stage in the biggest game in world football as recently as 2018 yeah potentially and, and if you look I guess at the players and the clubs that they play with you would say that the majority of the French players are probably playing in bigger games within European football in particular in the latter stages of Champions League that they might have the know-how of, of navigating a difficult situation and the pressures that come with a game like that but you look at the Argentina team and, and the journey they've been on over the last 12-24 months I think that Copa America win day for them was was very important because it built the belief it got the monkey off the back and they were very much able to build confidence from that of, of, of winning a competition and going to the latter stages and finally getting over the line that I think will, will help them in this situation where France may have had a bit of an advantage I think Argentina over the last 12 months have certainly got that kind of experience of, of winning competitions and just being difficult to beat and they've gone obviously on that incredible unbeaten run that was disrupted by Saudi Arabia but they've bounced back and you can see the confidence has flown through their veins I'm not sure they'll be going into that game fearing the French I think they're, they're going in there thinking that they've got a really good chance of beating them only one manager has managed back-to-back World Cup winning teams. That was the uh, Italian manager back in the 1930s. So Brazil won it in 58 and 62, but with different managers. Deschamps now one win away from doing that. Does he maybe perhaps not get the, the credit he deserves? Probably not. And, um, you know, you look at the French team and, and the superstars that exist within that squad. Managing 
players and managing egos and managing individuals over over that period of time of four or five six weeks is, is not always easy and the French always haven't been brilliant at doing that there's often been kind of uh, scuffles within the camp or, or unrest and disrupted their, their performances oh he deserves massive credit and tactically he's got a lot right you could say the same about Scaloni very much an unknown coming into this competition the youngest manager at the World Cup and he's tweaked his formation and he's tweaked the personnel at different stages depending on the opposition that they've played and he's got a lot of things right so you know both teams coming in 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 relatively good form good managers who seem to know how to get the best out of out of both teams and we are really set up for, for a right cracker on Sunday certainly are and just one final question on the final for now in terms of Messi it's been billed as uh, you know the, the fairy tale ending to his Argentina career if they were to win. But, but in terms of his legacy, does it really matter whether or not he wins the game or Argentina win the game in terms of what he has achieved as a player? Maybe for some, but, but not for me. You know, he is the player that gets me out of my seat and I'm, I'm sure that is consistent for many people I was actually you know you almost laugh inside with, with some of the things that he's doing on the football pitch and he's he's not just done it at this competition and it's not like he this hasn't been messy for the last 12 months anybody who watches French football and I've watched a lot of it over the last while will say this is messy in Ligue 1 as well and he's produced moments of absolute magic with Neymar and Mbappe um, and he's done that throughout his career at Barcelona as well so for me it, it doesn't it it won't be kind of a black mark against his name if if he doesn't go the full way. But um, for some, maybe, but but not for me. I just think the man is an absolute genius. I'd love if he went on and kind of just completed his CV and any conversation of comparison with any other player. Because for me, he's the absolute greatest. And um, I'm sure if he wins this on Sunday, it will be consistent for many other people. OK, we'll be uh, hearing your World Cup 11 later in the programme, also discussing some of the fallout from uh, England's uh, quarterfinal exit. But uh, when we return, we're going to be uh, talking rugby. We're going to, as I said, move on to uh, rugby now, and it's the uh, heading into the second weekend of the Heineken Champions Cup. Uh, certainly very impressive performance uh, from Leinster last weekend one of the tournament favourites and they certainly I suppose uh, laid down a marker with that win a uh, comprehensive win uh, last weekend I'm uh, joined now by uh, Keen Tracy of the Irish Independent Keen, you're, you're very welcome along Thanks a minute So just we'll I suppose start off with Leinster and uh, as we said I mean they're very highly fancied for obvious reasons and uh, it was quite uh, quite an impressive start to their campaign yeah, it really was. Um, at times, it was like watching Ireland, and it wasn't just um, it wasn't just the result. I think it was the variety of the tries that they scored. Um, it was a real statement in, of intent. I think the most pleasing aspect of it was the fact that they actually looked to take Racing on up front. Because if you think back to last year's uh, Heineken Cup final, they they actually went away from what had stood to them so well in the final against La Rochelle they started taking their points rather than going for the corner and I think that was a massive psychological win for La Rochelle so quite clearly Leo Cullen and Stuart Lancaster have gone away they've had a rethink and I thought it was really encouraging that they got an early penalty and they went straight to the corner from there it was um it was curtains really for Racing who were really disappointing in terms of in terms of this week yeah like I think Leinster would have always been confident of getting five points at home tomorrow against Gloucester but then when you see the team that Gloucester are sending over um it's bitterly disappointing. It's a very, very bad look, I think, for the competition. I think it's a bad look for Gloucester as a club. They've made 13 changes. It, they're sending over a second, if not a, a third-string team. Now, they won their first game at home to Bordeaux last week, so um, 
you know, if the fans who are going tomorrow from Dublin, okay, they're going to be shortchanged. Broadcasters are going to be shortchanged. But anyone from who's going to make the journey over from Gloucester is going to be shortchanged as well. And it's not cheap to get over here this close to Christmas either. So, look, this is a problem with the, the new format of the Champions Cup. Um, Could you see the tournament organisers, you know, coming forward with some sort of sanction for this? Or is it very difficult to... To, to, to prove the intent yeah I, I think it would I think it would be quite difficult I mean Gloucester will say that they have a huge premiership game against Leicester on Christmas Eve next week and that's what they're preparing for but it's such a defeatist attitude to have so with the new format with only you know playing back to back games before the knockout stages it leaves very little wiggle room as Ulster and Munster find out I'm sure we'll get on to them but Gloucester have clearly looked at it and go okay well we're not going to get anything at the RDS in terms of points we're unlikely to get anything back at King's Home in the new year as well so they're thrown in the towel and like if, if they had lost the first game you'd say okay you can kind of understand it but they beat Bordeaux at home and um, this is a club with a proud, proud history. Uh, they're fourth in the Premiership, so you're kind of look. You were kind of looking at this at the outset, going, uh, "This will be a decent test for Leinster." You'd imagine they should still win, but it does Leinster no good to be playing a BRC team. I think the they were 22 point favourites at the start of the week. They're gone to 35 now. That does, like that's just a terrible look for the competition. Now, of course, Gloucester could come and they could surprise everyone, but I highly, highly doubt it. So those turning out at the RDS tomorrow night, it's almost like a buy for Leinster, is it? Well, like I mean, they still have to turn up and win the game, and I don't think you will see any complacency for Leinster. Uh, Leinster is still hurting from the fact that last year they had to give a walkover to Montpellier due to COVID reasons. They felt they had a team ready to go, and you know that might be ancient history now, but it still really irks yeah, Leo Cullen the fact that they had to hand over the points to a club who they ended up beating by eighty nine points or something in the return game in, in the RDS so that ended up costing Leinster having to go on the road they actually went on the road to, to Leicester in the quarter final but from a Leinster point of view their biggest job is to get as many points on the board as possible that includes like getting the five points tomorrow in terms of bonus point win but also racking up as many points in terms of points difference as well because Leinster are looking at a very very real possibility of only having to travel away once from now until the, potentially the final if they were to get there because the final is on in the, the Aviva Stadium so if you think that after Christmas Leinster will go to, to King's Home to play Gloucester then after that once they get in the knockout stages because they've done away now with the two legs in the, the round of 16 so um, if Leinster were to get that far they could be playing all their games in Dublin so it's a huge carrot and like Gloucester sending over at second third string team is you know that's not Leinster's fault so Leinster's job is to put as many points on them as possible And the Leinster team confirmed Johnny Saxon named on the bench yeah, like Leinster are in a position that, you know, they didn't have to rush Johnny Sexton back because Ross Byrne is playing so well. Like Tyg Furlong is in the same boat. He's not in the 23, but he's back training. Uh, the guys that came in last week, like we touched on at the start of the conversation, did so well. Ross Byrne was a huge reason why Leinster, Leinster played so well in the Harvey against Racing. So it's a, good, it's a good culture to have, I think. I think we're starting to see it when the Irish set up as well. The players are being rewarded for form. So uh, what a luxury to have to be able to bring Johnny Sexton back onto the bench. But it's a huge vote of confidence in Ross Byrne as well, who, you know, his, his standing in Leinster has never been in doubt. I know he's kind of coming back into the Ireland frame now. But from a Leinster point of view, he, he's hugely trusted both by the players and more importantly by the coaches it was interesting a couple of weeks ago Stuart Lancaster was saying that he's a guy that you know he, he, he knows what I'm thinking when I'm in the coaches box and that really brought me back to what everyone used to say about Joe Schmidt and Johnny Sexton that Johnny Sexton was Joe Schmidt's brain on the pitch so that's how highly regarded Ross Byrne is so uh, they've made four changes but they don't they certainly don't weaken the team at all Gary Ringrose continuing as, mm. as captain very much a player in form yeah and I think he could be he could be in the running now to be a contender to be next 
next Ireland captain like it's going to be a big decision that uh, Andy Farrell is going to have to make after the World Cup he's in the leadership group in Ireland you can see he, the, the captaincy isn't a burden on him at all he's playing outstanding he, he was really inspirational in the, the comeback win against Ulster at the RDS a couple of weeks ago the same again last weekend just brilliant he's in great form you imagine you know the captaincy can be a burden sometimes on players but he seems to be relishing it he's a quiet guy by nature but when Andy Farrell first took over as Ireland coach he put him in the leadership group along with the likes of Tyke Furlong who they wouldn't really have been used to being captains down through the years but it's trying to push them out of their comfort zone it's something Stuart Lancaster noticed when he came over to Leinster at the start that um, the players were quite quiet by nature and he wanted to get them out of their shells and we're seeing signs of that now that's been another huge part of Stuart Lancaster's success I think in terms of the other Irish provinces, obviously we, we've touched uh, on Leinster uh, quite comprehensively in terms of a very encouraging start. Uh, not so much uh, Ulster and Munster. We'll uh, discuss uh, Munster. I mean, is it a must-win game now, given the the uh, defeat last weekend? Must-win game this weekend? Yeah, it really is, because like I said, the, the new format just doesn't give you any wiggle room at all. Um, Munster will be feeling a lot better about life, I think, Um you know, Ulster having to play La Rochelle back to back is going to be hugely difficult. But Munster going to Northampton, they're definitely good enough to get the win. And you'd imagine if they did, by the time Northampton come to Toma Park after Christmas, their interest levels could be gone as well in in the similar way that Gloucester seem to be now. So <clears throat> Munster got you know they they got the bonus point losing bonus point against Toulouse last week. There was more signs of progress under um, Graham Roundtree but um, Northampton aren't the same team that Toulouse were so they should be confident going there getting a win The fog obviously didn't help uh, I suppose anybody's cause last Sunday but some encouraging signs as you say despite the outcome From what we could see yeah uh, uh, it, was, it was pretty <laughs> unusual wasn't it Yeah look I think the defeat like Munster losing at Thomas Park is you know it would it, in days gone by like that just would have been an and no, no, but this isn't the the team of old. You're also talking about going up against. Realistically, there's about three or four teams who can win the Champions Cup this season. <clears throat> Toulouse are are one of them. So coming up that short and playing re- reasonably well is no bad thing at all. The players are clearly more comfortable in terms of what Mike Prendergast is looking to play with. with. They've spoken about the fact that you know when he came in that they wanted to change habits, and that's going to take time because. It really is a very different game plan to what they were playing under Johan van Gran. And I think supporters are realising that too. From an Ulster point of view, very difficult, I suppose, to put any sort of a positive spin on that defeat last weekend. Yeah, it was it was disastrous, really. Um, it looked to me that they were still had a bit of a hangover from the defeat at the RDS in terms of how they lost it. So um, to be nilled away from home and to make a sale team who were no world beaters look like, you know, the Harlem Globetrotters was really, really disappointing. And Ulster have really backed themselves into a corner now this is a I would say this is a season defining game for them um, this weekend they you know like there, there's question marks still over the mental I, th- I think fragility around this team we've seen that over the last couple of years the games that they've lost it sounds like John Cooney and Ian Henderson will be back which is huge but Andy Warwick is now suspended for a few weeks as well after he was cited in last week's win so I think in years gone by you would have had French teams coming over maybe se- sending a second string but with Raj in charge of La Rochelle and as champions that's not going to happen and no doubt Raj will want to come back to Ireland and send out a statement as well so that looks like a very very difficult uh, test and there's talks that the Ravenhill pitch might not be ready the RDS is on standby potentially to play the game which would be a disaster from an Ulster point of view because they need every advantage they can get and mention of Connacht uh, involved in the uh, Challenge Cup and Bundy Aki back in the 15. Yeah, a bit of a surprise really, um, but I like it. I think 
you know, Connacht are clearly using the Challenge Cup to, to blood players going forward and there's nothing wrong with that. I think their their focus is going to be on the URC. They've had a tough start to it, but they kind of look like they're getting back into the swing of things now. And I think one of the things that Leinster and Leo Cullen have done well over the years when in terms of blooding young players is putting guys like James Ryan in with Devin Toner now we're seeing Bundyaki be playing with younger guys as well and that's huge for, for Connacht guys there's no point in having you know one of the best players in the country if the younger guys can't feed off that so they're going over to Breve uh, they're struggling badly in the top 14 they're bottom of the table they sacked Jeremy Davison earlier this season there's a couple of former Connacht guys actually over in Breve you've got Sammy Arnold and Abraham Papialihi so yeah it's an interesting test but I, I you can understand why Connacht are trying to blood players through it they do have a couple of exciting guys coming through Adam Byrne now you know looks like he's hitting his straps from having come from Leinster he scored a crack and try last weekend so uh, this is a really good chance I think for him to build confidence before the festive period Just away from the uh, club and provincial scene I suppose uh, I just want to get your thoughts on the story which has emerged the last couple of weeks and some uh, quite uh, horrific uh, uh, news today in terms of uh, Wayne Barnes some of the uh, social media abuse he uh, received uh, following a France-South Africa game pretty shocking stuff yeah, like this all kind of stems from the the game he was refereeing between France and South Africa, and we all know kind of you know what happened after that. People taking to Twitter and you know making all sorts of insinuations. Ins, ins, so um, it's shocking, really. I mean, imagine like no one deserves that kind of abuse, but they like people online targeting Wayne Barnes's wife and his two young kids is just despicable behaviour, really. Um, it's 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 an issue I think we we've seen in the game. Um, Rassi Rasmus has been punished for his kind of tweets that he's put out, um, but it's something that you're going to have to try and stamp out. But it's very difficult to know uh, how you do stamp it out because. Wayne Barnes was saying in the interview that he did you know he's reported a lot of it to police but unless you can track down these people's location then then what can they do so um, it's just mindless trolls isn't it behind behind you know most of the time nameless accounts I think we all probably see it in, in day to day but to see your wife and two young kids being targeted is just it doesn't even overstep the line it just goes so far beyond that it. it's disgusting behaviour Absolutely yeah. appalling stuff just to finish up just to go back to something you touched on and, and at the start of the, the, the conversation in terms of the format of the, the Champions Cup and obviously it's been uh, changed uh, in the past And do you think that the current format is, is the best way forward or what do you reckon? No absolutely not I think I think what's happening tomorrow with Gloucester shows that it's, it's not working and I'd be very surprised if the powers that be at EPCR don't have a rethink about this like even in terms of having the two pools the, the enlarged pools it's very difficult for fans to to get their heads around what happened and I think fans enjoyed the, the old pool stages what they were you get, got more of a chance so if you lost your first game you had plenty more games to, to make up for it whereas now you've little to no wiggle room um, I think fans enjoyed the, the kind of the back to back games that they're having and, and now you're just trying to tr- scratch your head trying to get around of it you know people are looking at the pools wondering okay they've beaten this team what does it actually mean in the grand scheme of things so um, the Champions Cup in its old format I thought was one of the, the great tournaments it still is and when it comes to the last stage you're still going to have the cream rising to the top but uh, you want the journey to get there to be exciting as well and at the moment like I said the, what's happening tomorrow with the Gloucester and Leinster game to me just is evidence that it's not working at all and I think if you were to do a straw poll with the, with the majority of fans they would certainly agree as well Okay, which games are you covering this weekend? Uh, I'm off to Northampton actually for the Munster game on Sunday. Uh, never actually been in Franklin's Gardens. It's been on my list for a while, so looking forward to it. Okay, enjoy. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Game on on 2FM.
Come now for more World Cup chat. Of course, uh, England exited at the uh, quarter-final stage last weekend with that uh, defeat to France under Gareth Southgate. England have reached a World Cup semi-final and, of course, the final of the European Championship. He is contracted until Euro 2024. But uh, we're not going to speak about some of the uh, the fallout from uh, England's campaign and perhaps what the future uh, lies ahead for uh, Gareth Southgate. Uh, Paul is obviously still with us in the studio, also joined by uh, uh, Paul, um, by Fergal Brennan, uh, football uh, journalist. Uh, Fergal, first of all, we would just start with you. What's, what's the sort of uh, the fallout been since that England defeat? I think it, it obviously stings England fans that watched it and were maybe full of expectation that this was the game that would carry them into the semi-final and a, a lot of fans that I spoke to were kind of earmarking this match as bigger than Croatia in the semi-final in 2018 and maybe even bigger than Italy in the Euros final because it's France, they are the defending champions and it's been so long since England have won a, a major title and I think as the dust has kind of settled there's there's maybe, there's a lot for England fans to digest I think and particularly Gareth Southgate's future being thrown into the mix. Um, for me, Personally, I I would disagree with the with the asterisks being put next to the result and, and England getting knocked out and this idea that more could have been done and maybe Southgate was in the wrong or or etc etc. I think France were were better. I think France are a better team than England. Um, and I I think this is England's natural resting place. I think getting to the semis in twenty eighteen and then the final in in twenty twenty that was a very good team with momentum. I think maybe that momentum has stalled a little bit since Euro 2020. You look at the Nations League coming into the World Cup, they were they were quite poor. Um, and I don't think there's any need for any sort of major panic. I think England are in the top 10 countries in world football, possibly the top five in and around there. This is a situation whereby they've met a team that is a bit better than them, not light years out in front, but... They're the defending champions for a reason and they're in the final this weekend. They've got a very good chance of winning it, doing what no other team has done since Brazil in 1962. And I think as hard as it is for England fans to, to swallow, that is just how it is. I think there was always going to be a, a France or a Brazil or somebody they were going to come up against and, they, and they'd lose. And that's exactly what happened. Paul, where do you stand on the Southgate tenure? Yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of what Fergal said there. I think he's he's done quite well in order to kind of to bridge the gap of, of reaching semi-finals and, and finals of major tournaments. But there's certainly still that kind of last hurdle that they're failing to get beyond, and that's beating that that tier one nation in in the in the form of France, or if, if you want to go back even to Croatia within the other World Cup and, and Italy last time out. So they're they're still. A small bit behind. I, I think they do the qualifying for major competitions seamlessly. I think they get out of the group quite easily now, which is, hasn't always been the case in, in previous campaigns. And they're beating the teams in the last 16 or the quarterfinals of competitions that are ranked below them. But I still think that there's there's still a gap there between England and those top nations teams. And whether it's a, it's a mental block or whether it's a, a capability gap, there's something that's preventing them from from going beyond those sides. And if you look at, you know, the, the French team that they came up against, France weren't really at their best the other night. There was there was a major opportunity to go beyond them, and and with Morocco waiting for them in a semi final, that this would have been a major opportunity. But something is holding them back. I'm not sure they have kind of that creative player or still that kind of engine room that can really dictate those those really tight games against the top nations. Fergal, the sense seems to be that Southgate will walk away. Is that the, the vibe you're getting? 
it's incredibly difficult to judge because that does seem to be the mood, the mood music surrounding him and, and the situation. I think obviously with international football, there's these huge gaps between games. It's not like club football where if a manager is under pressure or potentially on his way out of a of a job, it kind of gets done and dusted relatively quickly. The FA will give him some breathing time. Um, whatever happens, I certainly don't think it's going to be confirmed in the next few days and weeks. Um, I, I really don't know, to be, to be perfectly honest with you, because I think logic would say that he should stay. Um, just listened to some stuff this morning from pundits, Alan Shearer, Rio Ferdinand, saying that you have to put this into context of where England were before Gareth Southgate's come in and the positivity and the cohesion and the, all the good things that he's brought to the job. Um, that can't just be thrown away because a lot of these players clearly benefit from his management style and I think that's an important thing. You've got a handful of players who were in the England team who are not doing well at club level, they're not regulars for their Premier League teams and he gets positive performances out of them which you bring a new manager in, different way of doing things, a different mentality, a different way of looking to drive the team in a certain direction. You don't really know how that's going to go. So I think... Yeah, it is It is very, very difficult to give it a clear answer on it. I think fans, if you speak to most fans, they would say, yes, they want him to stay. I think there's the odd person saying, no, he's the reason for England not getting over the line and breaking that psychological barrier. I would disagree with that. My hunch is that he'll be talked around to stay, um, but it, it really is right now a bit of a 50-50 call. But I, I think he'll be asked to stay He'll take on the job until after 2024 and then he'll step away. And when you say you think he'll be persuaded, why do you think he's maybe having second thoughts? I know there was a suggestion, and again, this is some of the reports we're hearing, that you know the, 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 um, all that comes with being England manager has taken its toll, perhaps, on him, especially after the uh, penalty shootout defeat to Italy at the Euros and that perhaps he may feel he has had enough of that element to it I think that is a factor in it I, I, um, the way that he handles the media is, is actually quite good and he's he's been better with the media than many England managers before him and in turn the media have been less savage with him than they have with previous England managers that's obviously helped by the fact that England are generally performing quite well at major tournaments. I think the the persuasion idea comes from that he's he's quite a straightforward operator, Gareth Southgate. I think if he thought that his road was run and he'd taken the team as far as he possibly could, I think he would like to step away. I think that's the big factor here now. Does On he his feel terms. That, that yeah, I think I think that's the big issue here. Does he think I've done enough with England. I can't get England any further. Somebody else is a better option to come in and drag them over that last couple of hurdles. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's where the, the persuasion and the talking round comes from. I don't think this is a case that he's ready to storm out. Um, I think he probably needs the FA to turn around and say, we're delighted with what you're doing. Give us another tournament and then see where the land lies after that. Um, because I, I think he does genuinely believe that England can win a major tournament um, and obviously he would like to be the person that leads them to that but I do think there is there is some doubts creeping into his mind now that they've been in these situations three knockout games in a row and they just haven't been able to do it and that, that must be playing on his mind at some level 
OK, let's uh, move on now to your World Cup uh, starting 11s. We've asked uh, Fergal and Paul to uh, pick out their uh, star players from this year's tournament. To start, obviously, with uh, the goalkeepers. Uh, Paul, you go first. Uh, I went with Emmy Martinez from, from Argentina. I think his displays have been really good, and in particular, I guess, the, the penalty shootout that kind of got him to the semi-final. I also played with him, so I felt like I had to do him a favour. Fergal. <laughs> Uh, this is the first disagreement that we're going to have uh, we're off to a good start I'm going for um, Croatia's Dominic Livakovic um, I think he's been excellent for Croatia really important in the two penalty shootout wins to get them through to the last four um, Martinez would be would be pretty close it's not a massive gap between them but I just think in the, the context of the defence that was in front of him um, and the experience that he's got I think arguably Croatia have a better defence than, than Argentina but he's a very young goalkeeper unproven um, against some of the forwards that he was coming up against and just those moments in the shootout kept Croatia in the tournament so I I just tip for Livakovic Paul your defence yeah so flat back four I've gone for Hakimi a right back incredible tournament in Morocco Virgil van Dijk Gavardio from Croatia and Acuna at left back from Argentina Fergal is your defence quite similar uh, two are the same I've gone for Hakimi and Gvardiol but I've gone for Roman Seiss from Morocco I know he had to hobble off last night but he's been incredible for Morocco and I've gone for Teo Hernandez at left back obviously drafted in last minute after his brother got injured he's been really good aside from the penalty that he gave away against England he's been really really important and in up alongside Mbappe up that left hand side for France I think he's been very very impressive onto the midfielders Paul yeah, so I've gone with Amrabas, who's obviously kind of been the forefront of, of Morocco's performances. I think we spoke about earlier, Dave, the way he broke up play, even the use of possession was was very of a, a very high quality. And I've gone with Luka Modric, you know, his his age, taking into consideration how he carried that Croatian team alongside Kovacic and Brozovic. I thought his performance were absolutely excellent. And I've gone with Anton Griezmann. Fergal? Uh, I've gone for exactly the same. Yeah, three for three in midfield for me. Oh, fantastic. Okay, and up front, Paul? I've gone with, I mean, I think two of the three picked themselves, Messi and Mbappe, just on a different level to the majority of other players in this competition. Goal contributions, uh, you know, assists provided, just general play at a, such a high level. And then I've gone with Richarlison through the middle. One that I kind of... I guess I was in, in the balance with Giroud or, or Alvarez but Richarlison I just think for that moment of quality particularly against against Serbia and also the goals in, in the round of 16 against South Korea and the way he finished them off and led the line for Brazil I kind of felt like I had to have Brazilian in there at some point as well so uh, Richarlison thought he led the line very well for them And Fergal where are the goals going to come from in your team? I've gone for Giroud uh, obviously as, as you mentioned Messi and um, Mbappe picked themselves they've been incredible one of them is going to win the, the golden ball and probably the golden boot uh, after the final on Sunday but I think Giroud's performances have been so beneficial for France and particularly within the, the squad as well this is uh, a panel that's been hit by injuries they've lost four or five really important players they needed an experienced figure and I think particularly for him he wasn't necessarily a guaranteed starter if Karen Benzema had been fit and the mental strength, the experience that he showed to just brush all that off, get on with the job of, well, I'm in the team now, you need me to score goals, and I'll score them. He's broken the France record, and just really important goals at important times in the knockout stages. Poland, England, I know he didn't score against Morocco last night, but those type of goals, and particularly the England goal, 
I don't really see anyone else on that France team scoring that kind of goal and he offered them that. They managed to shackle other areas of the pitch, England, in terms of nullifying France, but they just couldn't deal with that and uh, that's why I've gone for Giroud. Just moving away from the World Cup now and it's been quite a significant day in the courts for FIFA and UEFA. The prospect of a future closed or even semi-closed European Super League has received another major setback. FIFA and UEFA rules which allow them to block new competitions as they did in April of last year of course were today deemed lawful by the European Court of Justice. UEFA warmly welcomed the opinion describing it as unequivocal. The European Club Association said it was a clear rejection of the efforts made last year by 12 of the continent's top clubs to form a new league. Paul, first of all, your, your thoughts on that? I mean, I think it's good for for all the domestic leagues within within European football in particular and, and kind of having that continuity um, and, and I guess format within leagues that we followed so closely over the last number of years I mean I was I was worried when it first came about just with the, the sums of money that were being talked about and I guess the the, the reluctance of some teams to, to join um, the, the Super League so yeah I mean I mean it's good it's good to have that clarity it's good for I guess English football in particular that they know that their their top teams are going to be pitting it out in the Premier League for, for the next number of years and that's where their focus is going to be that's where their talent is going to is going to stay and and from a spectacle point of view, I mean, the Premier League has been fantastic over the last number of years, so it's fantastic that we're going to keep it that way. Fergal, I suppose it's important to stress that the uh, legal opinion is non-binding, but uh, pending the final ruling from the court, which is expected to go along similar lines next year, I mean, this is a, a significant <laughs> development. I'm not saying it's the end of the, the, the possibility of a breakaway, but certainly, as I said, it is significant. It's very important and it, in, in two different ways from the clubs that were in favour of this and from UEFA and the teams that were not in favour of this is very important because it demonstrates that UEFA, FIFA and the teams that are opposed to this idea are not letting their guard down in terms of the legal challenges and in terms of some of the future issues that are coming down the line. But it's very important to remember that the teams that didn't pull out of the European Super League haven't really backed down in their stance. They've basically just said, OK, you know, let this run its course if it has to go through the courts and in four or five years we'll come back. So I think this notion that a court ruling is the end of us hearing about the European Super League or some form of European Super League is is probably incorrect, but it shows that both sides have, have definitely still got their guard up and it's important that fans, people who are, you know care about domestic football, Premier League football, European leagues, don't assume that this has gone away um, because it hasn't and if UEFA and those teams involved don't maintain their position then the opposite argument will gain ground um, and it's very very important that they don't do that Fergal and Paul thank you we're talking American sports next Game on Eye on America Now as always on a Thursday we're joined by Shep to uh, discuss all the uh, big American uh, sports stories Shep you're very welcome along Thank you, Dave. How are you doing today, buddy? Good, good, thank you. Now, um, we're going to start off with a World Cup-related story, and uh, US player Gio Reyna has been at the uh, centre of somewhat of a, of a storm. He was accused of a lack of effort in training ahead of the USA's opening fixture with Wales. Also, uh, questions asked about his behaviour when he was uh, not substituted on. A bit of a war of words, perhaps, between himself and the manager. What do you make of this story? Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, we've we've talked about 
on my last couple of segments, you know, just kind of the lack of punch in the U.S. offense at the tournament this year. And the big question around it was why wasn't Gio Reyna playing more? Um, just for a quick backstory, his father was on the American teams in the 1990s. Now, look, I understand, you know, American soccer on the world stage, it's never been like, you know, dominant or great by any stretch of the imagination. But in my lifetime, it, that, that's kind of when, you know, it actually kind of became a thing across the country. It was in the 90s when we hosted the World Cup and his dad, Claudio, played on those teams. And his mother played college soccer with Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and those those teams at North Carolina. So he's got these great bloodlines. And, you know, I think folks were expecting a big tournament, kind of a breakout tournament for him this year. And it never materialized. And it turns out that maybe it, in during the training and the practices, he wasn't given the greatest effort. And, you know, you know, you cover sports long enough. The guys in the locker room and the girls in the locker room, they notice this when, when someone's kind of, you know, half-buttoning around the field and not giving it their all. And um, it seems like that would that led to a big part of the reason why Coach uh, Berhalter just wasn't playing him is because he wasn't seeing, you know, the results in practice or the effort in practice. Um, and, it, and it didn't, he said it felt like it was, you know, um, he wasn't in shape and maybe it led to some other issues. And so he really only played one half uh, in the in the Netherlands game when the U.S. was knocked out. Before that, he played about seven minutes in the three previous matches. And I read a very strong piece in the L.A. Times which suggested that if it came down to a straight choice between Reina or the national team coach, that uh, the coach was the guy he had to go. Is, is that uh, generally what the feeling is in the States? So, I mean, I, th- I think... I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily the feeling of everyone. I mean, you know, the managers when it comes to you know the, the the football teams. I mean, they're managing a lot of egos too. They're not just managing the X's and the O's out on the field there, and they're having to make the you know the call. Now, I do think it's disappointing that basically you know you only get what two goals in in three or four matches, excuse me. And so yes, there was some there were problems, you know, on the offensive side. But as we've talked about again over the last month or so, the youngest team in the tournament, only one player before had any experience not exactly sure what we were expecting to see from this team um i would hope uh that you know the coach and reina could get on the same page in the coming years but you know we know how it is you know egos get in the way and and maybe maybe that bridge is already burned and uh, briefly we'll try and get through one or two other stories uh, significant developments regarding the uh, ownership or potential ownership of the uh, washington commanders yeah, so Daniel Snyder and his family own the Commanders, and um, you know he's widely considered one of the worst owners in professional sports in America. Um, and it's but it's really rare that you see a team actually be put up for sale. But um, they have there's been investigations into the workplace culture uh, at the at the Commanders offices. They've even had you know congressional hearings and reports being put out on the 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 atmosphere in the building, and he's been partly held responsible for it as knowing it was going on and still allowing it to happen. And so you're starting to see some of the other owners in the league discuss the possibility of him being forced to sell the team. Again, it doesn't happen very often. He's kind of taken a couple of steps on his side as well, uh, working with Bank of America, who's initiated some other franchise sales in other sports as well. But this would be interesting to see, you know, who, who a new f- future owner of an NFL football team would be. And very briefly, in 30 seconds, if you can, um, interesting story regarding uh, the MVP trophy uh, being named after Michael Jordan. Yeah, look, Dave, I think this is great. You know, um, no other American sports league has 
as, as good of a tie between its current players and its previous players as the NBA does. You know, these guys, they look up to them. They're their role models. I think this was kind of a no-brainer. They changed several other awards names as well to, you know, some mo- more recently, uh, you know, all-star players. But obviously the MVP, why would you not go with the GOAT and give it to Michael Jordan? Exactly, the goat indeed. Many thanks, Shep. We'll talk to you again uh, very soon. That's it from uh, me for tonight. Marie is back tomorrow. I'll talk to you again in the new year. Live across the nation. And on the RTE radio player. This is RTE.